Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. It really is an exciting opportunity. Um, many of you don't realize we're actually going to be hosting um, uh, women coming from out of town. They will actually be staying here as one of a couple of places where they'll be staying. We're so committed to doing this. Uh, eight days of hope. Um, one of the requirements that they have is that that uh, to actually serve in it, we need you need to serve for three days. Now that's over a course of two weeks and three weekends. That's doable, but uh, we hope some of you will prayerfully consider that and be a part of that uh, because we're committed to it as as a church to help our community, and we look at this as an incredible opportunity to to be the hands and feet and 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 provide resources to our community, maybe even to some of you. There's a place you can go on that website um, if, if you're someone still struggling and sign up and, and have your home assessed and uh, look and see what's possible. Well, uh, an older guy was walking along a, a country lane with his dog and, and mule, and suddenly a, a pickup truck screamed around the corner and knocked the man, his mule, and his dog into the ditch. Uh, the old guy decided that he was going to sue the driver of the truck to recover what he'd lost. So when the old man was in, in, at the, uh, in court on the stand, the att- defense attorney said to him, Now, sir, I want you to answer yes or no to the following question. Did you or did you not say at the time of the accident that you were perfectly fine? And the man said, Well, me, my dog, and my mule were walking along the road. And the counsel said, wait, wait, sir, sir, stop. I asked you to tell me yes or no. Did you say you were perfectly fine at the time of the accident? Well, me and my dog and my mule were walking alongside the road, and, and the defense attorney breaks in again. He, he turns to the judge. He says, judge, your honor, This man is not answering the question. Would you please insist that he answer the question? And the judge said, well, I mean, it it appears obvious to me he wants to tell us something. So let's hear him out. So the man on the stand said, well, me and my dog and my mule were walking along the road. And this truck comes tearing around the corner way too fast, knocking us into the ditch. And the driver stopped, got out of his truck, saw that my dog was really badly mangled hurt, went back to his truck, got his gun, and shot him. Then he went to the mule, and the mule's leg was broken, and knew he'd never survive it, shot him. And so when he walked up to me and asked me how I was doing, (laughs) naturally I said, I'm perfectly fine. It's amazing how our perspective can radically affect how we see and how we respond to situations in life. And James says that it matters which perspective you and I work from. How do we see the world around us? In our series move on the book of James, we saw last week that our words are so powerful and can be used to to build up, but also to tear down. But even more than that, they often indicate the state of our heart. And so from here, James wants to get his readers to examine their lives. From from where do they draw wisdom? From how do they view the world around them? 
I want to invite you, therefore, this morning to open your Bibles to James chapter 3, verse 13, or the Version Bible app, you feel free to use that. If you have neither of those, we have notes in the bulletin that have um, most of the scriptures and places to fill in blanks and take notes. So reading verse 13, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. James says true wisdom demonstrates itself by humbly living a good life, a God-honoring life, a life that is pleasing to him. And, and he says that really that contrasts with a life, uh, a second source of wisdom, a second approach to life. He goes on in verse 14 to say, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or, or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, or, or of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. The, the, he says the second source of wisdom doesn't come from heaven above, from God's dwelling place, and, and from the one who loves us and gives us his wisdom generously. Back in verse, chapter 1, verse 17, he said, every good and perfect gift is from above. And in verse 5, he said, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. James says the second source of wisdom isn't from above, isn't from God. In fact, it has the very opposite source, the devil. It's not a holy and spiritual kind of wisdom from the Spirit. It's earthly. It, or, or elsewhere in the New Testament, the word is translated worldly. For instance, in Jude, verse 18 and 19, it says, They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. This kind of wisdom from the devil leads, he says, to disorder, to, leads to divisions, just as it did in the Garden of Eden. And it is, he shows us a startling contrast from the true wisdom, the wisdom of God. He says that wisdom, verse 17, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Notice that the, that the results of heavenly wisdom, if we really think about it, they describe the kind of relationships that all of us desire, that all of us even crave and want in life. Jesus calls us to love our neighbors which James earlier called the royal law. And as we do that, as we seek to be his disciples and, and love our neighbor, our lives are blessed with the kind of life that all of us deep down have been seeking, that, that God has always desired for us, that he shows us in Genesis chapter 2. In fact, it's, it, it's interesting as you look at this, these, these results of godly wisdom here sound a lot like the Beatitudes from Jesus in, recorded in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers, 
the meek or the gentle, the poor in spirit or submissive, the merciful and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And yet James realizes his readers, and and in fact often us, aren't experiencing these. And, And we aren't because we are more in tune, he says, with this worldly wisdom that is creating havoc in relationships all around us. He he says in chapter 4, jumping, moving forward in chapter 4, verse 1, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you don't ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you... You ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? James says there's so much dissension going on. Though when he says kill, he's almost, he's certainly speaking figuratively here, talking about what's happening to relationships. And again, if you think about it, it takes us back to, again, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said anger between brothers was, brothers and sisters in Christ was equivalent to murder. He says their desires battling within them are driving this. The picture here is that these people are seeking what what they want, what they desire, going after their own desires. And this, he says, this self-centered approach to life is so destructive. People are often seeking what they want, what they think will satisfy their, their desires as they look around them, as they see what others have, and they think that somehow that must be the answer. But the result inevitably is, the scripture says, is fights and quarrels. And James says They certainly aren't getting what they want. In fact, he says they don't have because they aren't seeking what God wants for them. They're seeking with the wrong motives. And then he calls them adulterous people, likening this this seeking of their desires first and foremost to adultery. And that that may be a shocking image or metaphor to some of you, but if, if you look through the Old Testament, it was, it was God commonly used that picture when people failed to seek him and, and make him first in their life and instead sought the things of the world, God saw it as adultery. He saw it as turning their back on this covenant relationship that they had developed. He had created them. He had loved them. He had made them his own through this covenant with them. He had sought only their best, but when they turned their back on him and and in sin went after other little g-gods or desires or what we want, God explicitly says that's adultery. That we're seeking after someone or something other than him. In fact, James says chasing after the things of this world makes those folks an enemy of God. And, you know, that's pretty harsh language. I, I, I get it. I understand. But James, who's been so concerned about our true heart, 
knows that so many folks' actions reveal in how they live their lives that there aren't God-honoring actions happening, indicating that their faith is dead. And he, he tells us earlier in the passage, faith without works is dead. If, and if there is no faith, there is no salvation. He's making a, a distinction between faith, good works, and the wisdom of God on one hand. And on the other, the, the, the tragic works listed in this passage that come from seeking worldly pleasures, looking out for number one. And he says it's based on the devil's wisdom versus God's. Now, at, at this point, it might be helpful to just kind of pull back a moment and talk about something called worldviews. Because when James talks about two kinds of wisdom, he is, in effect, talking about two kinds of, of worldviews. A biblical worldview, and then all the others which we would kind of lump together as calling a worldly worldview. So what's a worldview? First, just so we're all working from the same page. Pastor John Ortberg says, and part of this is in your notes, says a worldview is a big picture orientation or mental map of reality. And it governs how you see things, what you do, what you say, and how you live. And he goes on to say that everyone has a worldview, whether you, you want to or not. You only get to choose what your worldview is. You might not be able to articulate what your worldview is. Many folks can't, he says. Often someone who looks at your life from the outside has a much clearer sense of your worldview than, than you do. Because they see how you actually live. They see what you really value. See, our worldview shapes how we, we understand our world. Our either big G God or little G gods. What governs the values and how we make decisions. On, and on one hand, there is the biblical or Christian worldview. And it's based on the teachings of the Bible from God's own true wisdom. It says God is the creator of everything, including us. And we were created for fellowship with God. Yet we sinned. We broke that relationship with God. And our sin affected not only ourselves, it affects all people. In fact, it affects all of creation. And yet God loved us so much that he, re he sought to redeem us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And as we choose to believe that he has done this, and he has done it through Jesus Christ, he offers us that his spirit would come to live in us and be to begin transforming us from the inside to become more and more like his son, Jesus, until that day when we do meet Jesus face to face and we see him as he is, for we will be like him and spend eternity with him in a heavenly restored earth. A biblical worldview believes in moral absolutes. Now this is really important because we can talk about a worldview, but what does it mean? It means, it believes in moral absolutes because God is absolute based on his very nature and character and they should guide our daily lives and choices. Conversely, any worldview that, that doesn't seek to conform life to God's ways isn't a biblical worldview. It's some sort of worldly worldview. Even if it believes in the existence of God. How do we know that? James 
Chapter 2, verse 19, he says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. A lot of times people say, well, I believe in God. Like somehow that is the line that gets them from being a non-believer to a believer from hell to heaven. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible makes it clear. James teaches us that any view of life, any worldview that is not centered on God, that trusts him, that follows, seeks to follow his son, that seeks to allow his spirit to transform us, makes us a friend of the world and therefore an enemy of God. In simplest terms, there is a biblical Christian worldview and then there is every other worldview. And all of these worldviews have a common foundation. It's first seen in Genesis chapter 3 when the devil, as a serpent, raises the question to to Adam and Eve, did God really say that? In other words, can you really trust God? And we say, well, yes, I trust that he loves me. But do you trust him with your tithes? Do you trust him to forgive? Do you trust him to love your enemies? We say, no, that's hard, or that's different. No, it's not. The devil leads us to trust ourselves and want our desires. That when we think what the Bible says in this case must be crazy, so I can can do what I want to do. We're following the lead of Satan, not God. Now, I'm not saying that's our intention. I'm not saying we're thinking that concretely but I am saying in effect that's what we all do the devil leads us to trust ourselves or something or someone else more than God a worldly worldview is centered in finding truth from some other sort than God and often that morphs into our own self-centered desires and over the last couple of hundred years alternate worldviews have continued to kind of naturally evolve and so that many of them have decided now they don't even need God. That there is no final or absolute arbiter of truth. So that all truth is relative. You know, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And I mean, if I've heard that once, I've heard it a thousand times in our world and our culture today. And ultimately, though, it, it comes down to what most benefits me. It's about what, what's in it for me. Does what God want work for me, or does, do I think that something else works better for me, and it drives us to a very self-centered approach to life that seeks personal happiness over everything else. It values what can be seen and measured as the ultimate truth, and so this naturalistic, this materialistic view dismisses the supernatural and emphasizes the secular. In one of the great Christian books of the 20th century, the book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, he writes this, What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. 
He says, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. When we separate ourselves from a biblical worldview, the truth of the matter is we can, we can justify any behavior. You, you cut the moorings from truth and everything becomes okay if you take it out to its natural progression. Because who becomes the arbiter of truth? Me, you, whatever somebody says. There is no ultimate arbiter. And so if I say shooting someone is okay or committing adultery is okay, who are you to argue with me? You know, anytime, well, when we do that, we, we see not just, not just big tragedies like mass shootings like we've seen this week and terrorism, but on a, on a much more personal level, as, as James said, envy and selfish ambition, fights and quarrels that corrupt and disrupt all of our relationships. And because of sin, we've all been immersed in these unbiblical worldly worldviews to the point that they may even be invisible to us. It's sort of like the fish swimming in water and, and asks, well, what is water? I hear everybody talking about the water and I don't even know what it is. Why? Because it is so much a part of him, you can't even see it anymore. And the worldview that you and I live in, that we see on television, that we experience lived around us, that we ourselves partake in, and I include myself in that, all of us, has become so vivid and so much a part of life that we don't even necessarily see it anymore. That's why we need God's spirit and his word to reveal to us the truth, the truth about ourselves, about the world, and, and then we must receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, submitting ourselves to him daily as his disciples who are seeking to know him better and therefore better see both the lies around us and God's truth for us. The Apostle Paul calls us to this in Colossians 2. He says, and now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. James says in verse 5 that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely that we seek him and not chase after what are ultimately bankrupt worldviews. For when we seek him, when we recognize that any other worldview is ultimately from the devil and humbly admit we need him and, and we repent, he responds. James verse 6 says he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In fact, James promises that God's grace enables us to turn away from the supernatural powers of the devil. He says in verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil 
and he will flee from you. In God's strength, you and I can resist the devil and all that this world values and even put the devil on the run. That's what Scripture says. That's what a biblical worldview affirms. And so when you're tempted to go to that site on the Internet, resist him. When you're tempted to speak selfishly to your wife or husband or, or friend, Resist him. When you're tempted to to anger or discouragement, doubt, pride, or worry, resist him. Resist him, and he will flee. James says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your your hearts, you double-minded. Wherever you are, if you will simply turn to him. He'll meet you right there. He'll meet you right where you are. He's not saying, you've got to get your act together. He's not saying, I've got to get it all worked out first. He will meet us where we are, for he already knows everything about us, and he still made this gracious offer. He says in verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, that may sound depressing, but until we accept that, that having a worldview that lives in friendship with the world, as James says, leads to sin and ultimately destruction and death, we won't see. We won't see why this is important. And yet when we grieve, when we mourn and wail our sin, God responds with his grace and love and often brings revival, even to a church or a nation or even a world. Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, go and read the history of revivals again. Watch the individuals at the beginning. This is invariably the first thing that happens to them. They begin to see what a terrible, appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. They temporarily even forget the state of the church and forget their own anguish. It's the thought of sin in the sight of God. How terrible it must be. Never has there been a revival but that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have had such visions of the holiness of God and of the sinfulness of sin that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. But James tells us, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Bow before him, kneel to him, and he will come and raise you up. Now, I know humility is so countercultural today because our world says, lift yourself up. You, 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 should, you should do that because no one else will. But God says, when we humble ourselves and submit to him, he will lift us up. The biblical worldview calls us to see the world differently. But more than that, to be different. And that's the essence of what it means to be holy, which is a conversation that occurs throughout the Bible that distinguishes us with a value system that seems upside down to the world around us. In God's kingdom and and this biblical worldview, God's wisdom says the way up is down. The path of freedom is submission. The road to joy 
is walked in mourning and with tears. And yet the end result is grace. Grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know, in writing this week after the horrible tragedy at the school in Florida, some have said that the phrase, our thoughts and prayers are with you, is meaningless. If you read James, the truth is, he would agree. He would agree that if our thoughts and prayers do not lead us to actively work for the kingdom of God, it is useless. He tells us faith without deeds, which is our scripture memory verse for this past week, is dead. While considering if there are always laws that can better address this epidemic of shootings. A biblical worldview recognizes that if you and I want to see real change, it comes through the power of God in Jesus Christ to change hearts. Disciples of Jesus Christ do pray. We do. And God uses that to drive us to work for real change in our world including, above all, leading others to Christ himself and growing them to be his disciples, who themselves then make disciples, so that we become essentially self-replicating and sharing God's love versus hate. It means that we're involved in things like eight days of hope. It means that we love our neighbors. It means that we care about our coworkers, even those that are mean to us. It means that we pray and look for ways to help our community to transform and make a difference, that we don't just gather in a holy huddle. I mean, what football team ever won the game in the huddle? The game is always won out on the line. We gather in order to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. We aren't here to pursue our agendas because that's the worldview that so many of us have been stuck in. And it's bankrupt. We are called to be the army of God, to be his agents of love and transformation. Our our sadness over the sin in us and around us drives us to realize how powerless we are on our own. I mean, all you got to do is look at what happened and say, how how can anything change? How can anybody solve or fix this? And so we have to humbly seek God with all of our hearts and obey his commands to love our neighbors. And does that change Florida tomorrow? No. But it might change Dickinson or Pasadena or Clear Lake or Houston tomorrow. And as we do that, Scripture says he will lift you up and carry you through whatever lies before you. Our Scripture memory verse is one that we need this week. We need to claim and we need to take to heart. Here, look at it and join me with this. Submit yourselves then to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. That's how you and I are called to live. To submit to him. To trust that biblical worldview that is laid out in the Bible. That doesn't say, I'll do it as long as it suits my purposes. Or as long as it's easy. Or because it benefits me. But rather, I will do it because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I have made him not only my Savior, but my Lord. And therefore, I will follow him. And I will submit. And if you need to submit to him, our prayer team is going to be down here in just a moment. If you need to talk to them about something else going in your life. If you need to help them pray with you over some part of your life that you recognize has been attached to the world more than to God. Let them pray over you, with you, for you. We're all in this boat together. There's not, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that's, that's me, that's you, that's the people who never walked through our doors. We're, we're all there. But let us, let these folks pray for you. Join us in MOVE. If you haven't, you can still get the book and read along and even watch the videos at home. And these are still out there as a way of daily investing in who God is and who he's calling you to be. If you're a guest today, myself and some friends are going to be out this door and we'd love to welcome you in and say hello to you. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Gracious God. I confess, and I suspect many of us confess, that we're often blinded to your truth, that we're often seeking our own way, that we have bought into worldviews that say you're, maybe we believe in God, maybe he's right a lot of the time, but surely he's not right in my situation or in this circumstance. And we find ourselves, without even realizing it, being blinded by the enemy and even following him when, even when that's not our desire. We need each other, Father. We need your word. We need your spirit to awaken within us a realization of who we are and whose we are, to help us see the truth, to hold our lives up to that and repent when we have fallen short and to use your power, your grace which is sufficient for every need to overcome so that we can confront the enemy and he will flee for he is not more powerful than you. You are God. You are God alone. There is none like you. And we thank you and praise you. And we follow in the name of Jesus. Amen. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.